Well, thank you to the worship team for helping us bless the name of the Lord this morning. Pastor Jeff, as he was leading us through the liturgy, I wanted to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Nahum. Nahum chapter 2. Nahum is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And this short sermon series is taking us through this prophecy. And we're in Nahum chapter 2. Got your blue pew Bibles there. You can follow along. This prophecy was given as the Word of God centuries and centuries ago, but it is the Word of God for us, too. Hear these words from Nahum chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, And the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? 
Almighty God, as we have read these sobering words, this ancient prophecy that sounds so striking to our ears, we are mindful that you are still the same God, the God over all, the Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, holy in majesty and power, merciful, giving undeserved mercy, undeserved favor. O Lord, we come to you, recipients of your grace. We have confessed our sins because we have neglected or ignored or taken for granted your undeserved favor. But Lord, we are reminded at what is going on in your world. We're reminded of the brevity of life. We're reminded of the horrors of sin, the consequences of life in a fallen world. And so we do pray with lament for the people of Ukraine. We pray, Lord, that you would grant them your mercy, mercy in the midst of this invasion, this war. We pray that people would be preserved and protected from the hostility of wicked men. We pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on all those, particularly women and children who are refugees fleeing Ukraine and entering into other countries. Have mercy upon them. We, we pray for evangelical Christians, those who are called by your name in Ukraine. Folks that have been part of the Ukrainian uh, Kiev Baptist Theological Seminary. Pastors and their wives. Church planters who have been prepared. Lord, we pray for them as you grant them your mercy. We pray for the Slavic Gospel Association and its work in Ukraine and Belarus and Russia. Lord, we pray that you would minister to those who are ministering to others, that you would give comfort to all of those missionaries and pastors and Christian workers and all the folks in those churches. We pray as well for the citizens of Russia. We pray for them as many of them are in duress and stress, even having their finances taken away, even as they have lived under a dictatorship for many years. We pray that you would have mercy upon them. Lord, I pray for Evgeny Bakmuski, the pastor of Moscow Bible Church. Pray that you would give him wisdom as he seeks to herald the gospel in the midst of these perilous times. We pray for the evangelical church in Russia that has been so often persecuted by its government. We pray that you would meet their needs, that you would have your hand upon them even in these difficult days. Lord, we thank you for the advance of the gospel in Canada, even in the midst of our own great struggles. We thank you for the ministry of Mile One Mission in Newfoundland. Pastor Steve Bray, who is in Calgary this weekend, we, we pray that you would minister to him and through that church and that ministry that many churches would be planted in that very unreached part of Canada. Lord, we pray that there would be an awakening in Newfoundland where people who have turned either to alcohol and drug abuse or have turned to 
the Roman Catholic Church with its false gospel or have turned even to the false gospel of secularism, we pray they would turn away from all of those and flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Jesus Christ alone. We pray the same for our city. We pray that even as our city has the wrath of God upon it, we pray, Lord, that you would rescue the perishing. We pray that you would give us the gospel on our lips to share with those who are lost in sin in this city, that they would turn from their sins. They would turn from all their self-reliance, all their reliance on their wealth or their prestige or their networks. That they would turn from self-reliance and turn to reliance upon you, the true and living God. They would cry out to you for mercy. And for this church, Lord, we pray that you would protect us, that you would cause us to be those who are people who are not perfect, but we are sinners who are redeemed, sinners who deserve your wrath, but who have enjoyed your mercy. I pray, Lord, you would cause us to be those kind of people who are filled with joy and gratitude because you are a good God and gracious to the undeserving people like us. Cause us to have our eyes lifted up. Even as we recognize your wrath, O oh Lord, remember mercy, we pray, even upon this land. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be asking in recent days, how can God permit destruction, devastation, disaster? Those perennial questions that, that come up in times of great crisis. They're fundamental questions which every person will ask at some point. They will ask these, these questions when these seemingly inexplicable tragedies occur. They'll ask these questions. And, and then it's interesting, especially in church circles, how those quickly passed over books, such as the book of Job, or the book of Ecclesiastes, or the ninth chapter of Daniel, or the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, suddenly all of those biblical texts become very relevant. They're poignant, even. And such is the case, certainly, with a book like the book of Nahum. It becomes poignant, even though probably it's one of the books that you're not as familiar with. And it reminds me even of the rhetorical question from the old folk song from Gordon Lightfoot in the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? And that's maybe something you've been thinking. Or I'm sure someone who's hearing the bombing in, in Ukraine. Where is the love of God during these minutes that are turning to hours? But these questions arise when we apply our notions of justice and we apply them to God, 
sometimes assuming that we, not God, are the judges. And so we say, well, why Ukraine? Why the refugees? Why children? Why God? And our insulated society here in the West has had to ask, or has actually not had to ask these questions too frequently because we're so insulated, certainly since World War II. But a, but a book like Nahum and the prophecy of Nahum against Assyrian Nineveh is one of those abrupt calls to reality. It is a prophetic shattering of our comfortable illusions. And you know how it is. You can get living in a, in a comfortable illusion. Even before Mark Zuckerberg came up with the idea of a metaverse, if you will. Meta. Um, if you're up on that stuff. Maybe you don't care. If you don't care, that's good. That's something not to care about. Sadly, for 120 years, I'd say, many churches have been telling people that God is for them unconditionally. That God is for all people unconditionally. And that the only reason why someone would not want to follow Jesus is because it would be detrimental to their happiness in some way. And, and so then the, then the only reason you know, that they would, they would be missing out is for some reason they think that they can enjoy their best life now without Jesus. But see, that teaching, this idea that God is for you, for all people, unconditionally, that teaching... It's not teaching, it's marketing. It rings hollow. It rings hollow when tragedy strikes. In the last two years, people have been shattered by the loss of loved ones to COVID or the loss of loved ones who have had to die alone during COVID or the loss of friendships, or the loss of family ties, or the loss of livelihoods, or the loss of civil liberties, or the loss of the dignity of humanity. And because we are used to having churches where the time at church is this pragmatic pump-up time, because we have had that, then we have often failed to be taught the reality of God's view of our fallen world, as well as then the unique, incomparable offer of salvation in the gospel. And so the gospel loses its savor because we don't really understand our true plight. So when we look at this powerful passage, in Nahum chapter 2, it outlines the promised, guaranteed destruction of Nineveh. And there's nothing really positive in the chapter. Nahum illustrates what happens, listen to me carefully, Nahum illustrates what happens when God is against you.
For some of you, you have never even considered the thought that God could be against you. And I pray that all of us here, we will run to God for mercy from God and His wrath. And so as we pray, in wrath, Lord, remember mercy. And that's my hope for each soul here today. Now, there are a series of images which Nahum brings to bear in describing the destruction of Nineveh. And so we're going to look first at what I'll call essentially these portraits of wrath. Then secondly, we'll look at the results of the wrath. And finally, the third point will be, which is the title of my message, namely, I am against you and what that means if God is against us. And then we'll make some applications and ask the question, is there hope for our Canadian Nineveh. But we begin by seeing that even as we think about our own lives, as we come to this text, we know that there's been an increase of information in the last few years, and that we're all having trouble swimming through all of it. And there's waves and waves and waves of content, waves of news, waves waves of spin. And so when you get all that, it can be really helpful then to get a series of pictures or portraits which summarize for us what's going on. And so recently, a picture of a mother and a child in a lineup at a Polish border, that tells me most of what I need to know about the refugee crisis in Ukraine. Just seeing that picture of a mom with her child trying to trying to cross the border. Nahum is going to offer us some portraits that summarize the judgment of God upon this great big city. These are portraits of wrath. There's six little portraits here. There's the fortress, the trees, the attacker, the attackers, the defenders, the pool, and the cash. We're just going to go through these really quickly. The fortress, the trees, the attackers, the defenders, the pool, and the cash. That's how I'm calling it. The first, in the first verse of the second chapter of Nahum, has a picture of a fortress. Now, Nineveh's city fortress, again, I've got to kind of fill in some of this archaeology. Just I've said it before, but just as a reminder, Nineveh's city fortress was so solid that heavily armored chariots could pass each other on the roadway that was situated on top of the walls of the city. So so you've got a freeway on top of the walls. That's how thick they are. So you would think it's pretty secure. Nineveh was the capital of a superpower. And the superpower would have those kind of walls. Its walls could never be breached. Or so they thought. But in verse 1, God has ordained that Nineveh would be destroyed and that the people would be scattered. So in verse 1, the ordained attacker is called, you'll see it there, 
the scatterer. The scatterer. Now this description, along with all of chapter 2, is ironic. It's ironic. This is all a, a grand exercise in irony. It's ironic because Assyria is the first superpower to have a policy of conquering a land and then scattering its inhabitants into other regions of the empire. This was to weaken any kind of resistance. Now, Nineveh would be on the receiving end of a scatterer. Who was the scatterer? Well, Nahum's prophecy would be fulfilled when the Babylonians, along with the Medes as their allies, rebelled against their masters, the Assyrians, and they laid siege to Nineveh and sacked it in 612 B.C. And just to get a sense of the size of Nineveh, at that time, they figured that, that the siege was laying hold of 1,800 acres. So maybe it's not as big as Calgary, but it's a big, big city for 600 years before Christ. And they laid siege to this place. Now in this first picture, what is important to see is that the promised scattering was coming. So God then, He ironically invites the Ninevites to do their best to stop it. Man the ramparts, watch the roads, dress for battle, collect your strength, go ahead. Basically, God was saying to the Assyrians, yeah, give it your best shot. Prep all you want. But you can't stop the wrath of God. And once you start reading with this sense of irony, it makes sense of this chapter. How many people and nations are hustling and bustling, preparing themselves to fight against God? I, I don't need to cite examples of politicians and public figures who I, I just marvel at how they can so arrogantly speak out against the God of the Bible. As if, you know, it's just so obvious. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? All your plans and preparations, shaking your fist at God. Of course, as David tells us in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. The Lord does, Psalm 2.4. Later on, the son of David said very matter-of-factly to Pilate, who is the conquering, basically, essentially a localized king there in Judea, he said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above, John 19.11. And so in this case, the cup of God's wrath was being prepared for Nineveh. <coughs> Excuse me. When it is appointed, think about it, there is no escape. For even Jesus had to remind Peter, you'll remember it in John 18, 11, 
put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus, even knowing, I have to take this cup of God's wrath. And so, to start off with his first picture, my question then is, have you accepted the inescapability of the wrath of God upon this city, this nation, and this world? Have you accepted the inescapability of the wrath of God against this city, this nation, and this world? The only escape is in faith in Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no political escape, I should say. There is no other escape from the wrath of God. But have you accepted that? Or are you kind of just trying to keep that out of your mind? That's the fortress. The second portrait is the trees. It's of a tree that has been stripped of its fruit. The tree in this case is Israel. Now, this is still a portrait of God's wrath because Assyria had conquered Israel already by this point. Or, as it says in verse 2, plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So that's a metaphorical way of describing the complete conquering of Israel. Now, Assyria, they had conquered then, uh, just to be clear, the northern kingdom of Israel and parts of the southern kingdom of Judah, but not all of Judah and not Jerusalem. You remember how God had split the United Kingdom because of Solomon's idolatry? And from that point on, from Solomon's day, then it was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Well, that northern kingdom was still after that. It was called Israel as opposed to Judah in the south. And the northern kingdom would sometimes also be called by its largest tribal name, which is Ephraim. So sometimes when you're reading in the Old Testament, you'll see Israel might refer to the whole nation, north and south, or it might only refer to the northern kingdom, and it's interchangeable with Jacob and Ephraim, these different names for these people. Isaiah had predicted, he said in Isaiah 7, 8, just before our Christmas time virgin birth passage, in Isaiah 7, 8, he said, within 65 years, Ephraim will will be too shattered to be a people. And notice the wordplay, too shattered. They're going to be shattered by the Assyrians. And 65 years later, you know what happened? The Assyrians came down and they shattered that northern kingdom of Israel. But in Nahum, and this is about the only positive thing in Nahum that is stated, in Nahum, The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. And he's doing it, how? He's doing it through judgment on Assyria. How is this possible? This doesn't seem to go together, does it? 
But what he's saying is Israel's people, they're, they're still going to be scattered among the empires from Babylon to the Greeks and then to the Romans. But the restoration, this is the key, the restoration of the majesty and glory, when's that going to come? Well, it will only come when Jesus, the true Israelite, he comes to restore the fortunes of Jacob by establishing a new creation, as Paul tells us in Galatians 6, verse 15, for neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so Paul would also tell the Romans, he would say, the branches of Israel would be regrafted in. As Paul said in Romans 11, 24, for if you were cut, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these the natural branches referring to ethnic jews how much more will they be grafted back into their own olive tree again a metaphor but just saying that the majesty and glory of israel would be restored as people of jewish background who may be if they trace their family tree, were part of that deportation, those folks would actually believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people today who are from what would have been the tribe of Ephraim or the northern kingdom of Israel. They're, they're believers in Jesus Christ today. And so that's an example. And so this is the restoration of the majesty of Israel through Christ. Jim Hamilton in his book, God's glory in salvation through judgment, quite the title, he says this, God's mercy often comes folded into his justice. Think about that. God's mercy often comes folded into his justice. So that's certainly the case for Israel's branches in Assyria's judgment. And so then I put this question to you. Again, can you accept that God brings judgment in order to reveal salvation? He brings judgment in order to reveal salvation. And and if you doubt that, look no further than the blessed cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because there, judgment and justice was was poured out but salvation was revealed through it and that's what Nahum is about it's laying out this judgment through which there is deliverance for judah well that brings us then to these i'm going to combine these next two portraits of the attackers and the defenders verses three and four they describe the attacking armies against nineveh Now, the key thing to notice here is simply the literary finesse in which Nahum is talking about these invaders. It's very stylized, very very descriptive. For example, 
the chariots, verse 4, they gleam like torches. They, they dart like lightning. So, I mean, I, I, don't hear, I don't hear news reports about the Russian invasion spoken of in such poetic terms. Okay? So this something, why, why is this? Why, why talk in this manner? Well, as I said in the last message, ironically, again, this was how the Assyrians used to describe in this very high style, describe all of their invasions. They loved to wax poetic about how they would crush and conquer peoples. They loved all these wide, you know, vast, deep expressions, literary metaphors, all of the English lit that you can conjure up. And they're applying all of that in how they slaughter people, talking about it, describing it. That was their art, their invasions, their sieges, their slaughters. The defender's portrait in verse 5 is of a stumbling sort of disorder in response to the attacking threat. And what, again, ironic, this is not how Assyria operated. But it shows then how unprepared they were. How unprepared they were for the coming destruction of Nineveh. And so, just again, I'll just ask you, and to ask yourself, what are the ways that God might be ironically, I don't know, flipping your pride against you? The things you are proud of, the things that are the source of pride in your life? Is God going to take those things and with grand irony flip them against you? Is it possible that he would take what a nation prides itself in and take those very things and flip them against it? We'll look at that a little bit more at the end. But even personally, and this is where each of us can think about this, how many people who prided themselves on a well-planned life that they had made for themselves, how many were suddenly broken by the Lord? Broken by the Lord. Broken down and needing to flee to God for mercy. And maybe that's you. It's certainly the testimony of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Broken. Broken down from his direction that he was going in. And saved. Certainly is my own testimony going in one direction, very well planned, thinking I got it, know what I'm doing, and God stops it. You're unprepared for God disrupting you. But He breaks in, thankfully, with grace. Those are the attackers and the defenders. Those are those pictures. But then that brings us then to the picture of the pool. Two more portraits, the pool, and then I'd say... The, the cash. Nineveh is called a pool in verse 8. Now, around Nineveh, the city, there was a moat, and it was filled by the Tigris River. 
And so it was then one of the keys, along with these massive walls, it was a key providing protection for the city. But what would happen if the thing that you used to protect yourself became the thing that removed all of your protection? And that's basically what happened. Because he says, verse 6, the river gates are opened. The palace melts away. You can think of it like when you're at the beach. I don't know if anybody's been to the beach for a long time, but um, if you ever go to the beach ever again, uh, hopefully we can all go to the beach sometime. When you go to the beach, you go to the beach, you make a sandcastle, right? And you do it by the water and you dig the trench, right? All you kids, you've dug the trench from the water edge. You dig the trench to your sandcastle and then you make a moat around it. What happens if there's a few waves and it comes up that little channel into your moat, what happens? It actually washes away your sandcastle, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to take a vacation. <laughs> this is essentially what happened in Nineveh. That the waters that were protecting them became part of the means and would be, as predicted, would be the means of their own destruction. But even, even beyond that, the invasion of Nineveh is likened to a personal violation with no ability to stop it. And it is tragic. It is horrifying. And in the same way then, the next portrait is of the cash, the wealth, the wealth of Nineveh is being drained away. All the cash of Nineveh was taken away. All of its wealth. And this was unthinkable. It is the idea, maybe it's not so unthinkable, but the idea of the United States with all of those U.S. dollars. And suddenly, there are none. There's zero. They're all gone. They're all taken away. There's no more to be had. There's, it's, it's over. It's unthinkable. This is a superpower. And its wealth is just gone, out the door. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end to the treasure of the wealth of all, the of all precious things. And it's all gone. And that's why even as I open, I, we obviously are praying for Ukraine as they face the invasion of the Russian army, but the, the people of Russia now they're talking about people in Russia trying to leave the country because now they can't buy and sell. They can't buy their groceries. Now they don't have access to money in bank accounts because there isn't any. It's all gone in a moment. And so a nation watches its wealth just, just drain away, out with the tide as it were. We need to be praying for them as well. We have to ask ourselves then, are we willing to let the Bible interpret our world? 
even when the Bible's prophecies and its promises appear to be unthinkable, impossible, improbable, or, or just highly unlikely. And that's what it would have been like, this idea to think that Nineveh would go broke, that Nineveh would be defeated. Yeah, maybe, maybe trouble on the outside, you know, and the rest of Assyria, but not Nineveh. Not Nineveh. They're still, they're still going to have lots of cash, lots of security there. No, no. We have to accept that God's wrath can make the unthinkable visible. God's wrath can make the unthinkable visible. And that's what would happen, what was predicted to happen, and did happen to Nineveh. Well, that brings us then to the consequences of the wrath of God against Nineveh. And again, we're going to see these grand ironies throughout. The consequences of the wrath of God against Nineveh would be such, you'd have the mighty, the mighty Assyrians, they're going to hear the pronouncement against them that says desolate, desolation and ruin, verse 10. How could this be? This was the New York City of its day, the London, the Beijing. Probably if you're actually to combine all of those into one, that actually is more like what Nineveh was in its day. Not just one of those, but all combined. How could that be? It doesn't fit. It should be the enemies of Assyria that are desolate. And that's what Assyria did. Assyria's policy was what would later be ascribed to the Romans. Where they said of the Romans, they make it all a desert and they call it peace. What we might call a scorched earth policy. That's what Assyria did. They brought desolation wherever they went. Desolation. And now it's flipped back on them. Because now, now it is the Assyrian Ninevites. Think of how they're described there in verse 10. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Yes. Fear and anxiety. These are feelings, yes. But they make us physically sick. They make us physically sick. And that's what would happen to the Ninevites. They would literally be feeling sick to their stomach. And to make it all more specific, then God confronts that most Assyrian of Assyrian practices in Nineveh. He asks in verse 11, he says, Where is the lion's den? Where is the lion's den? And you think, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the Assyrian kings, as we mentioned before in, a message, in the previous message, the Assyrian kings, they would catch and breed lions. And they would have all of these lions, and they would feed them and have them grow up, 
and then the kings would engage in the royal sport of killing the lions. And there's lots of stone reliefs of them shooting arrows at the lions or stabbing the lions or, you know, skinning the lions. The lions and and the killing of lions was the frequent subject of the artists and the poets. And now the lions and all of their terrible symbolism would be removed for good. Nobody in Nineveh could have predicted then that with all of their lion strength, it would be gone, and in the future would come a different lion king, a different one, who would come on the scene, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Weep no more, say the elders of Revelation 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. He has conquered. And when we think about the consequences of judgment, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the first of the month. And the Apostle Paul he says, when he, when he taught on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, he said that people could drink judgment upon themselves by being false in, their looking, in saying they're looking to the Lord when they're not, in taking of the communion when they don't belong to Christ. They could drink judgment on themselves. And then he says, do you remember? He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Interesting. That there is actually a consequence of judgment, even in drinking judgment on yourself and not discerning the body in the Lord's Supper. Well, we have these portraits of wrath and judgment. We have the consequences or results of the wrath. But then, following the portraits and the consequences, there is a switch in the speaker. You notice it there. You can see it in verse 13. There's a switch. No longer is it Nahum narrating in the third person. In verse 13, then, we have the most chilling words that could ever be spoken in the tongue of man. It's the most chilling Behold, I, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. God was against the Assyrians. He had offered mercy and salvation for them through the preaching of Jonah. That's why it's really important to match Jonah with Nahum. God had shown His forbearance and His mercy and His compassion to these sinners, these enemies, these criminals, these wicked people. Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites because he thought, yeah, God should strike them down, and I don't want to preach so that they would repent of their sins and be saved. I don't want to give them that mercy. And God says, no, Jonah... I want you to go, and you can offer mercy. And of course, there was a little revival that happened in Nineveh. But by this time, at Nahum's prophecy, that thought is long past. 
And this is just a reminder. When mercy is offered, you've got to take it. You can't say, oh, well, I'll trust in God's mercy some other day. You don't know if you have another day because you're under the wrath of God. And God is against you as he was against the Assyrians. But they no longer had any interest in tearing their robes and repenting of their sins. So God was against them. And this is this, this truth is the ignored reality for those who reject God, who don't think that they have to seek Him, who don't want to follow Him. But, but if you don't flee to God, then God says, Behold, I am against you. You know, people will think, oh, I can run the risk of hell after I die. I can run that risk because maybe it isn't real. Maybe it isn't just all dogs go to heaven, but everybody goes to heaven. So I don't have to worry about hell, even though some people think there's a hell. So I'll run that risk. They'll think that. But they don't realize that God is also against them in this life too. So then, they, then they're puzzled. They're puzzled. Why are things not working out for me like I planned? Well, and they'll, come to, they'll say these things to me. And I'll say, yeah, but God's against you. Why should anything work out for you? Why should anything be good for you? God is against you. You're under the wrath of God. You're under his curse. There should be nothing that is good in this life. And the fact that you still have some good things, the fact that you can look at the beautiful Rocky Mountains or look at a beautiful child in the face, the fact that you have these good things to enjoy, boy, don't you see? He's holding it back. But not forever. This, the Assyrians, their pride was in chariots, in lions, in winning, in having all their messengers spread their influence. They were the original influencers. And all of these, all of these God would target because God was against them. Behold, I will burn your chariots and smoke, the sword shall devour your young lions. I'll cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. That's it. See, even if the judgment is delayed, as it has been, was at the time with Assyria, as it is now in Canada, even if the judgment is delayed, then God is putting into practice what he tells us in Romans 12, 20. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap what? Burning coals on his head. In other words, you're adding to the inevitable judgment that is on a person by you offering mercy in the meantime. It's not taking the coals away, it's heaping them on. 
if you've been resisting God, is it possible that like Nineveh, that you've been mistaking God's patience for affirmation? You think that because he's, he, he hasn't struck you down that he's affirming you? As Paul says, or, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 2.4 Each of us, each of us is in need of repentance. But there's some of you here, and certainly some whom we know, and certainly myriads in this city who are needing to repent for the first time and to flee from the wrath to come. I close by, I just want to consider just how the ways that that we need to rethink about the wrath of God and specifically to think about what I'm calling our Canadian Nineveh, but also the area of our evangelism, just to apply it practically. But first, by way of application, how is God against us, that is, against this land, against, against the West, against an American Nineveh, against, you're going to say, against a Chinese Nineveh, a Russian Nineveh, a Canadian Nineveh. How is God against the Canadian Nineveh? Well, in view of this, I think to put it another way, why, why is it justifiable if God is against our nation? And I would just suggest from Nahum, we're reminded that there are areas where Canada is symbolically proud of itself, and ironically, often those are the very symbols that God is against. And I just have a few to consider. The culture of death. Abortion and euthanasia. Canada, as a nation, prides itself on its views of abortion and euthanasia. But it is a culture of death that God is against. A second is transhumanism. The whole transferability of gender identity and gender fluidity. Canada prides itself on its progressive position that way and advocacy. And God is against it. Generally speaking, immorality. Whether it's pornography, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, no marriages. Well, Canada prides itself on that. Canada's a hub for churning out pornography. God is against it. What about all of our various idols? Our idols of health and wealth. Canada is supposed to be so healthy and wealthy and such a nice place to live. And yet we, will, we, we refuse to thank God for them. If you say anything 
along the lines of giving thanks to God. Somebody say, oh, well, you're, you're bringing religion into politics or something. God is against our idolatry. We have mass exploitation in terms of taxation and finances and all of these things. People are being crushed. They can't pay the bills. And yet, we celebrate all of our systems and structures. God is against any exploitation of the marginalized and the weak. Now, it doesn't really matter the diagnosis of Canada as it's Nineveh. We know that people without Christ, God's wrath is against it. But what's important for us to remember, and this is what I want you to see, is that there should be no illusions here. We should have no illusions. Every day we have to recognize what is justly deserved by our society, by our world. There's no, there's no claims to a Christian foundation or civil liberties of churches which would make our society somehow immune to God's judgment. We have to admit that. We have to accept that. But lastly, and I think this is for all of us, lastly, I think that because we refuse to think negative thoughts, right? We refuse to think negative thoughts. We're actually all given over to the power of positive thinking. Norman Vincent Peale, it's, it's just endemic throughout, throughout the evangelical church. We refuse to think negative thoughts, and so we shudder at thinking about the terror of the Lord in His just punishment against moral criminals. That's regular people who are sinners, unregenerate, and lost. And the result is, because we refuse to think those negative thoughts, we have no sense of urgency of evangelism. It's just not urgent. It's not a priority. It's not important. We outsource evangelism to others. We ignore evangelism. We substitute evangelism for political action. We are timid in evangelism. We avoid evangelism. All because we don't want to believe that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That all people, it's an overwhelming thought, All people outside of Christ are under God's wrath and there is a narrow window by which they can hear the gospel and so be saved from the wrath to come. But we don't believe in it. We act like it's not coming so then we don't share the good news. Why do people we love think that they don't have to turn to Jesus today? Because they don't think that we believe it. They don't think that we believe it. Like deep down. Because if we believed in the reality of God against us as sinners, how much more then would we live lives of gratitude and joy at the undeserved mercy of God toward us? And they would see that. They, they know that we got the smell of smoke on us. But we walk out knowing, ah, 
I can stand before the Lord, not in righteousness of my own, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The savor of it, the preciousness of it, is all the greater. If God is against us, then, how can you escape? There is no escape except one. And that is, as Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? God is for you when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, you need to flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Christ, know that God is for you, not against you. And if he's for you, you can speak with confidence and warn others to flee from the wrath to come. Make it so. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would help us to cherish and to savor and to glory in your undeserved mercy toward us in the gospel. But help us to be motivated, O Lord, that we would warn people to flee from the wrath to come, to repent, as Jesus said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. O Lord, save many, even here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand as we respond in deep gratitude to this gracious God. Please rise. If you've been trying to run away from God and you realize that you need to run to God to escape the wrath of God, I urge you to talk to one of the elders today. Talk to somebody in your pew. Don't leave here thinking that somehow you will be immune to the wrath of God as you leave this building and yet you have not escaped to Christ. But for those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, these words are true. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? May you know His grace and His mercy. Go in peace. You're dismissed.